I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In today's episode, we have a special guest, the Honorable Tim Grosser, former Minister of Trade from New Zealand and former Ambassador to the United States from New Zealand. Tim joins us for a conversation on the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. We talk with Tim about the United States' role in the Asia-Pacific, what the current status is and how the application by China to accede to the CBTPP will affect trade relations in the region. Stay tuned for this and much more in today's episode of The Trade Guys. Welcome to this special episode of The Trade Guys. Bill and I are honored to have the Honorable Tim Grosser as our guest on the program. Tim Grosser was New Zealand's ambassador to the United States from 2016 to 2018. Before that, he was New Zealand's Minister of Trade and was uh, responsible for and president of the creation of many trade agreements, including the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Bill and I came to know Tim when he was based in Geneva. He was New Zealand's ambassador to the WTO and uh, one of the more creative, inventive officials present on the scene. We had great fun working with him then. We value his friendship over the years, and we're delighted to have him on the program. Ambassador Grosser, welcome. Well, thank you very much to the both of you, and I think you do God's work, frankly, in terms of a highly specialized audience, but I think it's an extremely important role that you play in the ongoing debate over trade, and I'm not just saying that for the record. Well, I'm not sure God would agree with that, but neither of us have been struck by lightning bolts yet, although there's the occasional rumble of thunder. But we're glad you're here, and we're looking forward to the conversation because you recently uh, got into the Wall Street Journal, one of our uh, favorite publications, an op-ed that discussed CPTPP, both from an historical angle, but looking ahead as to how the United States should approach it. So maybe we can begin by asking you to uh, tell us what you said there and how you think this is going to play out. Well, that article started with a, a real-world event that I was present at when President Trump made his first address to the Joint Houses of Congress, and I was a VIP guest on the floor of the House. Paul Ryan was still in the chair as Speaker. And it was a parliamentary procedure that we have throughout the democratic world in which the leader of the country gets up and throws red meat to his or her constituents who then rise with a look of complete adoration and astonishment that the leader could be so uh, clever as to come out with a word like, we'll be tough on crime, and applaud. And when he got to TPP and said, so I signed this executive order withdrawing from TPP, there is almost dead silence. And I swear that I could see President Trump's face. I was only 30 yards away. He was astonished. I honestly do not believe that he understood that what he was saying was anathema to a large majority of Republican members of the House and the Senate in front of him. Eventually, people realized there was a nasty mistake in the making, so some polite applause, but that was as far as it went. Now, we think this is a huge strategic mistake by the United States. For the United States to confront its principal adversary in the region that we all understand is going to be the critical region 
and I'll follow political fashion, drop the Asia-Pacific term and go with Indo-Pacific. The U.S. Has got to, is missing in action in this sphere. And the United States has got to have an economic game to back up its strategic military game. I mean, if the competition with China is just on the military level, the best thing we can ever hope for there, because it's there for deterrence, is nothing ever happens in terms of engagement of these two superpowers. If it does, we have to go back to the mid-60s playbook and remember the standard advice. What do we do? We bend over and kiss our ass goodbye. Not, you'll understand, gentlemen, uh, that at the age of 10 I use such appalling language. So I'm saying the US has got to get back in this game, not just sit there and think to themselves, oh, I see China's not only the dominant power in the first of these two major pieces of economic architecture in the Indo-Pacific. I'm talking about RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is 16 nations, of which China is the dominant member. But I see China's now wanted to get into what was TPP. It's got a slightly new name to it, Comprehensive and Progressive TPP. Oh, I wonder what will happen then. I'm sorry, I think the world's premier power has got to be more assertive on that. Now, I don't believe a few anti-trade zealots on the far left and the far right of American politics aside that the few people in the United States who think about these big strategic issues, I'm sure that the large majority of them understand the need to engage in the Indo-Pacific, not just on the military side, but on the economic side. So why isn't it happening? Well, I think there's a near picture-perfect political metaphor for this that comes from a very old negotiation, not on trade, but in the era of fixed exchange rates, it was the Plaza Accords. Do you recall either of you that phrase? Yeah. So the fixed exchange rates, huge misalignment of the US dollar, Jim Baker was Secretary of the Treasury, and high-stake negotiation. And during one of the most crucial moments of that negotiation, a reporter from the Financial Times of London came up to the key US official at the negotiating level, the Assistant Secretary to the Treasury for International Monetary Affairs, and said, do you people know what the answer is yet? To which he replied, and I'll never forget, asking us that is like asking us if we know what the answer to 2 plus 2 equals. Of course we know what the answer is. What we haven't yet figured out is how to say it politically in public. And I think that's precisely the problem here. The Dem side, I mean, Let's, it's come to the big exception to this statement, USMCA vote, in a minute. But historically, as you people know, you're experts on this, the Dems have a very poor record of supporting trade in Congress. And usually trade agreements went through with the large majority of Republicans and a scattering of Dems. USMCA is a very important exception to this. On the Republican side, you can't wash away the legacy of President Trump's decision, and that's a constraining element for them. So I see a potential strategy. I'm not making a prediction this is what will happen here. But if you go back to that Carnegie study, I've forgotten the date it was published, that Jacob Sullivan and um, a number of US trade experts were co-authors of. It was a title like Making Foreign Policy Work for the Middle Class. You can see a sequence here. They are now addressing, through this very elastic use of the word infrastructure, the anxiety, in their terms, of the middle class. This is the basis on which they could then move forward more aggressively on foreign policy, including, of course, this key strategic issue in the Indo-Pacific. For the Republican side, 
I mean, I'm sorry, I just do not believe that people like Kevin Baker and Devin Nunes do not understand that the US has got to be engaged in this competitive race and not just sit back and watch from the sidelines. I think there is a way back. Now, I don't expect anything to happen before the midterms. The Democrats have got to get their signature piece of domestic legislation in place first. And I'm assuming, I'm not following this blow by blow at the moment, but I'm assuming that something will eventually emerge from this intense negotiation now underway in Congress. Uh, equally, I think that we've gone through the midterms. I don't think the Republicans would be in a mood to sit down and talk in a politically adult way behind the scenes on what the United States must do. So I'm thinking, first of all, I think there is a script that could be written here. I don't believe the United States can simply rock up to my successor because, you know, through the negotiating history of this agreement, New Zealand is the official well, you call it the secretariat, the correct term is repository of this agreement, and say, sorry, guys, we've changed our mind, can we come back in again? I don't think that's politically feasible for the United States, for either the Republicans or the Democrats. Don't forget President Biden on this, who was a supporter of TPP, said during the campaign to neutralise the attack from his opponent that he would want to see certain key elements renegotiated. Now, I'm not just advocating a game of mirrors here where we take the old bottle of wine and shove a new label on it. I think that the strategic environment has changed quite dramatically over the last five years, all for the worse, and there are issues that have become so much sharper during that period that I was deeply involved in those negotiations, like the techno-nationalism of China, the huge significance of digital trade as it merges into the physical world of trade. New understanding about what SOEs are doing and so on and so forth. So I think probably, I'm gonna say metaphorically, 75% of TPP as it still stands uh, would be an excellent base. But I'm arguing here that I think experts in the United States, together with business interests, they need to take a look at this agreement if they can get some political clearance through the eyes of what has happened to strategic competition between China and the US in the last few years. I'm suggesting call it a different name. I'm using the politically fashionable term of Indo-Pacific Partnership Agreement. And also there's the interesting issue of the UK. So the UK has now said, we want to join. I'd like to talk about that because I think it's an extremely interesting strategic development. So to sum up, US in my view, is MIA on the economic architecture of the world's most important region in terms of this competitive challenge ahead of us this century. Second, I think both the Dems and the Republicans understand this has to be seen through the lens of strategic competition with China. I think there's a point of bipartisan support there that can be built on. Third, I don't think that the midterms make a difference to any likely congressional support because, frankly, it doesn't really matter whether the Republicans change from being fractionally in the minority in either or both houses to fractionally in the majority after the midterms, which would be the historical trend, what matters is we get bipartisan buy-in to a strategy. So that is the strategic outlook that I see. I don't think that we would fundamentally disagree with that. We'd like to take advantage of your expertise and talk about it a few minutes from the perspective of, of the region. I think from the U.S. point of view, there's historical precedent for what you're talking about. If you look at what Clinton did with NAFTA, what Obama did with CHORUS, the Korean agreement, what Pelosi did with USMCA, 
It's all the same. You know, you pronounce the existing agreement inadequate for our purposes. Biden's already done that. Then you announce you're going to fix it. Then you have a negotiation. You change something, and then you pronounce it fixed, and then you join. Uh, so the steps are there. The key issue, of course, is you have the negotiation. And that's where I'd like to get your, your, your thinking a little bit. As you pointed out, five years have passed, so some things are different. There have been some agreements including, that have included the United States. I mean, you have RCEP, but you've got a number of digital trade agreements amongst various parties in the region, including New Zealand, which I think is party to a couple of them. You've got DEPA and, and some others. Uh, you've got a U.S.-Japan so-called phase one agreement that includes uh, digital provisions. So there's been new developments going on. The U.S. presumably, let's assume that they follow the path I described, the U.S. presumably is going to approach New Zealand and others and say, you know, we'd like to come back in and here's what we would like to do and lay out some, probably some proposals that are pretty close to what we have in USMCA and what we have in, with Japan because those were subsequent. How would the uh, current CPTPP members react to that? Is there, is this on the, would they uh, consider these things or what? First of all, can I just highlight, there's a very important point of agreement, Bill, between your analysis and mine, and that is that this is not just a game of mirrors. Uh, those are my words, but you said it in other words. The situation has changed, so it wouldn't be just a trick of changing a few woulds to coulds and shoulds to woulds. There is something more substantive out there that needs to be changed. So it would be a new agreement that would fold in, as you said, according to a playbook that we're very familiar with. But, it, 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 but it's not just a trick here. Now, on your question, I um, thought a lot about this, and my view is that the, if the US administration, with some sort of background murmuring from the other side of the aisle, were to open a discreet discussion with the existing members of this agreement that's called CPTPP, let's just call it TPP for short, during this discussion, there would be a reaction at two different levels. The underlying big political question will go straight to head of government level. Absolutely. The issue of what that would mean would go to professional negotiators, people like me. Now, at the level of head of government, I think it would take you know, approximately 0.3% of one nanosecond for the Japanese to say, we must tell our people to sit down with the Americans and talk this through. I've got no doubt whatsoever that would be Prime Minister Kishida's immediate response. My own belief is that the reason why Japan did not walk away with the United States on TPP after the Trump withdrawal was almost certainly because they wanted to preserve this option for the United States. So I think that strategic judgment would be made immediately. Now, at the level of professional negotiators, there would be all manner of complications and questions that would arise, and there would be people who said, oh, we're settled, we don't want to change it again. It's, but I'm sorry, the first level, the big geopolitical judgment from the leader of Japan you think the Australian Prime Minister would be any different? Of course not. That would determine what the response is. And, and then a quite complicated negotiation would no doubt unfold. Well, given the United Kingdom's uh, preferences at this point, does that simplify or complicate negotiations for the United States? It complicates, if you use my two-level metaphor, it complicates the negotiations on the second level a lot it hugely facilitates the process at the top level. 
So I'd like to just, if you allow me, just take a few minutes to give you my take on where the UK is going. Uh, first of all, just the point of declaration, I'm a dual citizen of the UK and New Zealand. I spent the first 10 years of my life in the UK and I have a British passport. If you'd asked me as a British citizen, do I think that they should have left the EU, I'd have said no. But if you then ask me, having lost that fight, what do you think we should do? I would have said, well, fundamentally, if you want to make Brexit a success, you've got to differentiate a post-Brexit trade policy for the UK from the EU. Otherwise, what have you, what have you gained? What have you gained? You've got nothing. So what is the fundamental problem of the EU? And I mean, you know from the intro, and I worked together over more than 20 years, that I've been the chairman of the WTO agriculture negotiations, and I fully acknowledge that the EU has made significant reforms to the common agricultural policy over the last 25 years. But nevertheless, their agricultural policies are still a massive handbrake on their otherwise fairly solid free trade credentials. They, now, I had thought, this turns out completely wrong, of course, that after 50 years of British agriculture being in the hothouse of the common agricultural policy, that it would have been politically almost impossible for the United Kingdom, post-Brexit, to adopt free trade in agriculture. And I am very surprised that the UK-Australia FTA has not been analysed in these higher-level strategic terms. It is a hugely important agreement strategically because it's total free trade in agriculture. Forget the timetable. That's irrelevant, always in trade. It's, it's an amazing agreement, very, very high level, which makes it possible for British negotiators in the future. And let's agree on this. You know, people portrayed the Brexit guys. We're just a tiny little island country. Well, it is the sixth largest economy in the world. It is probably the fourth most potent military country in the world after US, China, Russia, and, well, I guess I'm not quite sure who would, whether France or the UK would be next in line as a nuclear power. I mean, this is not a small country. It's just a country with power. The AUKUS is a clear movement of an independent Britain into the Indo-Pacific. They need an economic gain. And the subtext of the announcement between the British and the Australian Prime Ministers is that Australia would not seek further improvements in the underlying deal when it came to negotiations on the UK joining CPTPP. What does that mean in political terms? It means there's a deal done. They're going into TPP with Australia's support, right? Now, I think that the Brits are getting nowhere with you people in terms of a bilateral FTA. I think there's a very interesting game here in which if the administration, with some degree of support from the other side of the aisle, of people who understand long-term US security interests in the Indo-Pacific, to get into this game again. Um, I think that's the way to fold in the world's sixth largest economy. It then literally becomes a bigger deal. It becomes a much more powerful deal. And um, I think it's an exciting proposition if people have got the political guts to reach out and grab it. Well, it, it's very interesting you point to this, essentially, a, a long-term agreement to free trade and agriculture by Britain. I see that as being expressed in the CPTPP as a, a, a nation that understands there's a lot of people improving their diets 
And free trade in agriculture is a net positive if you're an export nation. And so I, I think, and it's something that I think the Europeans have, have been missing for years. And it's true of a lot of our sectors. Uh, I was always amazed to see American dairy uh, industry, for instance, seeking further protection. Every time I traveled to uh, uh, south of Mexico, I found New Zealand butter on the table. <laughs> it's like You better tell Tom Vilsack immediately. You know, the United States is a lot closer, <laughs> but, but somehow there's a, there's, there was an initiative there that was taken. So, uh, but uh, I'm glad to see that confidence expressed. What does the U.S. need to do, in your view, as a next step? Well, I think that the administration will inevitably be focused on consolidating its, domestic, its centerpiece domestic piece of legislation. And, I mean, whether it's a complete answer, it certainly isn't, to what we call middle-class anxiety. It does at least give them the political base of an argument that says, we, the Democratic administration, have done something quite historic on a range of issues to try and put a greater safety net under people in real trouble. We're now ready to move forward with our partners on, on trade and foreign policy in a more aggressive and muscular way. So that's what they do. On the Republican side, I, I don't think it's realistic to imagine any um, positive conversation going on at the moment. But once that is out of the way and the midterms have produced whatever they produce, uh, which I think will probably mean a small Republican majority in both houses, but you're better placed to guess ahead of me than that, then we need to have some quiet conversations among some political adults on both sides of the fence, aided and abetted by leaders of the US business community and foreign policy community who understand the strategic interests of the United States in this. So I think that those quiet conversations can take place. And then we'd follow what Bill was saying earlier. At some point, the president would have to indicate either himself or through Catherine Tai that we're having some exploratory discussions or whatever the phrase you use, Bill. Let's turn for a moment to the other applicant, or one of the other applicants, which is China. Two thoughts there, two questions there. Are they going to get in? And uh, how does that affect the U.S. strategy? Well, short term, no. But longer term, I, I mean, who knows? Who knows? Uh, most of the countries involved have got China as their number one export market, certainly includes mine. And our experiences with China on trade have been anything other than negative, been extremely positive. Uh, New Zealand exports to China, believe it or not, approaching 15% of total US exports to China. It's an amazing statistic. So we're exporting $20 billion a year of goods and services to China. So, but I think the number one issue in people's mind is, what is the United States going to do? You see, when I was having discussions with very uh, important Chinese political figures, them coming into TPP, this was going on seven or eight years ago when I was the repository of uh, the TPP negotiation. And I knew these people very well. They're all super smart, fluent in English, know exactly what they're doing. And they were following the older Deng Xiaoping script, you know, not the Wolf Warrior script in those days. So they were constructive discussions. And um, I think it was clear to me that the thing they most wanted was the SOE chapter, paradoxically. Why? Because they knew they didn't need Professor Nicholas Lardy of the Peterson Institute to tell them the reality, which is that the SOE structure of their economy is the weakest part of their economy. Something like 
10% only of Chinese exports, according to Professor Lari's outstanding analysis, come out of the SOE sector. About 45% come from foreign companies based in China, and about 45% come from privately owned Chinese companies. Capitalism works, right? So they wanted those disciplines. Now, when we were having those discussions, which were constructive and positive, they hadn't made a political decision to join. They were just feeling me out. And politically. And it was clear to me that the context was on the assumption that the United States stayed in the deal. I mean, that was, that was the deal. So they were going to come into a deal in which the other giant, the Americans, were going to be the sort of stable political base. So if you ask an Australian or New Zealander, what do you think about China joining TPP with the Americans inside, you'll get a completely different response to what about China coming inside if the Americans are still outside, missing in action? One foreign minister, uh, no, one trade minister of an Asian country said to me when I was the trade minister, he said, you know, I think of TPP and the ASEP, the other one that China's the biggest member of with 16 countries. I think of them as the two wings of a giant airliner flying through the Indo-Pacific. He used the term Asia-Pacific. Well. In other words, in a balanced and peaceful way, because the US was a counterbalance to China. Well, one of the wings broke off when President Trump withdrew. So I think it's a very complicated question for us in the what remains of the TPP agreement. We're not anti-China. What we don't like is some of the more recent China policies that we all we all know, we all share that, the concern about how far is this movement back towards centralised state control going to take China? So uh, I, I'm not sure I can predict what will happen, but I think we need to know, is the United States going to forever stay outside this game or get back in? I mean, you said it yourself. Your, the discussions you've described with the Chinese took place in a different regime uh, at a right. different moment. And it if anything, Xi Jinping is moving backwards toward more state control, more SOEs, which I would think would take them farther away from TPP eligibility. On the other hand, you know, all there's a lot of TPP members that have very strong economic ties with China, uh, as you pointed out, and may be susceptible to Chinese pressure to join. Well, I agree with every single word you've said. That's exactly it. And um, that pressure will be used. I mean, anyone who thinks that either the United States or China, the two superpowers, when they've got leverage, will never use it is completely naive. So I think we need... Look, we can sit... The natural friends, allies and partners, the usual phrase, which I like, by the way, I'm not making fun of this, of the United States, we need to know where you guys are. I mean, we understand you're caught in this political trap at the moment. That was what my metaphor about the Plaza Accords, which is... We sure understand what the answer is, we just can't say it in public. We need to know at some point where you're going, and then we'll make our decisions. Well, that's a fair point, because it seems to me that uh, as an American, uh, there's an obvious approach to this. The obvious approach is get in the agreement and improve it. I mean, that's you've got to make it a better agreement, both for political consumption back home, but also because... Ultimately, a China, China as part of it needs to be part of, of a stronger, higher, higher standard agreement. So that's where I'd go. We need an injection of confidence to do that, but it doesn't make it not the right thing to do. Let me ask a technical question. If, uh, if China gets in before us and we attempt to come in later, could they block our accession? 
Yes, because it's done by consensus. Of course, what I'm arguing is suck the existing TPP agreement into a new agreement. So the rules can be massaged in that process. By the way, there's nothing, not only in terms of the metaphors or precedents you uh, raised, Bill, earlier around the, you know, the NAFTA refresh becomes the new agreement of USMCA, but this is the history of TPP as well. So TPP started off as a bilateral FTA with Singapore. Then the, I persuaded Ricardo Lagos, the son of the Chilean president, and Alejandro Jara, a name I'm sure both of you people being trade experts know. Chile can come in. And then at the end, tiny Brunei joined in. That's fine. And then, but it, and then P4 became P5 when the Americans finally said, we want to do a friendly takeover of the agreement rather than start a completely new deal. And it changed again. In other words, the negotiating history of this agreement is that its membership mutates. Every time it does, it becomes a new agreement with a new name. So there's nothing in what I'm proposing here that is any different to the negotiating history. Sounds like an opportunity to rebrand. Uh, I, I do think you're right about a new name. I, I've got to do, come up with something better than the name you expressed earlier, but uh, because it's not memorable or mnemonic. But we'll figure that out later. The key is having the confidence to go forward. And you know, my view is: look, I understand the the distributional concerns of uh, not just Jake Sullivan, but many in the Biden administration. My view is: you can't redistribute something you don't create in the first place. So let's go create value. Let me let me ask one last question, if I can, before we run out of time. There's a lot of discussion here about uh, from people who think that despite all, all of your splendid logic, that that's not going to happen. Uh, so there's a discussion here about plan B. You know, what do we do instead of CPTPP? Uh, and the answer that has come up is let's do an Indo-Pacific digital trade agreement, which I think might be politically easier here, but I think politically more difficult in Asia. Do you have any thoughts about that? Either as an alternative or a supplement? I'm all for it, but I mean, it's that that's only one element in the larger game. I would still argue that addressing only that important issue by itself without talking about SOEs, without talking about intellectual property, I mean, that's not, that's not the whole game. No, I, I mean, it's, it's part of the solution. It's not the solution. But can I just end with one slightly more far-reaching view? You see, I think China needs the United States in the region engaged in the design of the architecture. Because without the counterbalancing force of the United States, all the negative tendencies that we've talked about that have become more apparent in the last two to three years, they will be accentuated. I think China has benefited enormously from US political leadership of the post-war economic era. And I see it even in China's interest in the long term to have an engaged United States define the rules of the game in terms of open markets and liberal thinking. In their interest, no question. I'm not sure they perceive it that way. Oh, they wouldn't. You're correct, right. So I'm, I'm trying to make a logical case. If you ask me, well, it's all logical, but um, no, nobody thinks it's going to happen. Well, then history will unfold in a very different way. Yeah, I wouldn't say nothing's going to happen. I think it's going to take a little time. But uh, we should send you to Beijing to, uh, if you think they'll let you back out, uh, in order to have some discussions with them about this. Bill, the real problem is the Chinese would let me out, but the New Zealand government would not let me back <laughs> in again because we've got this complete ban on anyone coming into our country because of COVID-19.
I have a different I have a different suggestion. Yeah, I think you ought to come back to the U.S. Uh, because uh, you're, you're look, you're you're bringing a perspective that we've lost sight of here uh, the, with our internal focus on matters at hand. We've lost sight of where we're going in your region of the world. And uh, I think we, we we appreciate you taking the time today to to help us get back on it. And uh, it's been great talking to you. And we hope you'll come back on, on the program. We'll have you again. Yes. Thank you. OK, thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.